Huddled Mass's latest season, The Innocents, wouldn't be possible without our generous sponsors. This holiday season, more people will be mailing stuff than ever before, which means the post office is going to be pretty busy. And if, like me, you don't have time for that, Stamps.com brings the post office and now UPS shipping right to your computer. With Stamps.com, anything you can do at the post office, you can do with just a few clicks. Plus, Stamps.com saves you money with deep discounts that you can't even get at the post office. So if you're a small office sending out invoices, for example, or an online seller fulfilling orders, or even a massive warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. And with Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. So stamps.com's a no-brainer. Saves you time and money and it's no wonder over 900,000 small businesses already use it. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for stamps.com instead. There's no risk and with my promo code masses that's masses M A S E S as in huddled masses you get a special offer that includes a 4-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in masses, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. I see my life come shining Hello, I'm Alex Hannaford, and this is The Innocents. And I'm producer Pete, back with you again. Alex, what are we doing today? We are interviewing a man called Jason Baldwin. Jason Baldwin, that name seems familiar. Can you tell us about him? Jason is one of the West Memphis Three. The West Memphis Three. The West Memphis Three. The West Memphis Three. It's to do with a case in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993. Three young boys were murdered. Three eight-year-old boys. The little boys were found in a drainage ditch, mutilated and beaten to death. Shortly afterwards, three local men are picked up for the crime and they are... Damian Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly and Jason Baldwin. And prosecutors would say that the kids were killed as part of a satanic ritual. That would be the satanic panic era. This occurred in the midst of what became known as the satanic panic. You're right, Pete. The crime was believed to be part of a satanic ritual. So this was a conspiracy theory. For those that are familiar with QAnon now, it may come as some surprise that in the 80s and 90s there was something very, very similar happening, um, not just in America but uh, elsewhere as well. It was a conspiracy theory that convinced millions of rational people that a secret society of Satanists had infiltrated the upper levels of society in order to molest children. So what did that have to do with Eccles, Miss Kelly and Baldwin? Investigators in this rural community believed that the teenagers killed the children as part of a satanic ritual. Well, they were sort of poster boys for this. Eccles was into witchcraft, uh, they wore dark clothing, they listened to heavy metal. And as a result of the trial, Eccles was actually sentenced to death for the murders and the other two, Miss Kelly and Baldwin, to long prison terms. Damien Eccles, then 19, was sentenced to death. Jason Baldwin, who was 16, and Jesse Miss Kelly, 17, were given life sentences. This was despite Jason and the others having alibis for the time of the murders and a forced confession from Jesse being used to convict them. But you'll hear in this podcast 
that there was a turnaround in their fortunes when new forensic evidence was presented. There is no physical evidence, none, that ties the convicted men to the crime scene. And it's a pretty well-covered case, isn't it? There's a documentary that was on Netflix, I think it's still online, called West of Memphis, which is well worth watching. What do you think that you got from Jason that perhaps isn't in those documentaries? You know, like I said, um, in the tease to this series, I think that it's massively important to give a voice to the people who have been directly impacted by wrongful conviction and to ask them not only sort of to talk about how this happened, but then to talk about the impact that it has on them. I mean, you know, the impact of being in prison, knowing you're innocent for so long. And then how easy is it to adjust to the outside world when you're free? And are you really free? I mean, this concept of freedom that, again, I talked about in the tease is complex. And Jason goes into that. All right, let's take a listen. Let's do it. You're looking well, my friend. Oh, thank you. Likewise. Jason and me go way back to the pub. In fact, I think that literally you were my last beer in public before lockdown began. Yes, that that was the weekend before. Uh, uh, what's the green holiday? Uh, Saint Patrick's. Saint Patrick's Day. Day. Yeah, yeah. It's a long. Feels like so long ago now. I'm very happy that we're doing this. And um, what better interview to kick off this new series that we're doing called The Innocence than to talk to my old pal Jason? But I wanted to start with your arrest for murder. Where were you and what were you doing when the police came? Can you describe that moment? Yeah. Um, at the time, I was over at my best friend's house, Damien's house. It's the last day of school for me. It's my 10th grade year. Like, I just finished the 10th grade that morning. Tonight, it's the last day of school. I'm staying the night over at Damien's. His mom rented a TV and a VCR and several movies. Um, they ordered pizza even though this was my last day of school and I was celebrating it, we were going to have fun. The murders had occurred on May the 5th, an entire month earlier, you know, and this was now June the 3rd. And during that time, no one knew who committed the murders. There was a lot of suspicion and a lot of finger pointing and a lot of rumors. This is a small town and everyone was talking about this. And the police were desperate, presumably, to allay the fears of the people that lived in the town. You know, they hadn't caught anybody. This is the pressure is on. The, the pressure was on them. Anytime, you know, they have to do media, um, they have to talk to the media, they have to answer questions from the media. And anytime they're asked something like who committed the crime and they don't know, that's pressure on them. And at that point, the police had been to my house and questioned me, questioned Damien, been to Damien's house a couple of times and questioned him. And people were spreading rumors and talking, not necessarily spreading rumors, but they would come up and say, hey, the police were showing a picture of Damien and asking if he was in a cult and if you were in a cult and if y'all were linked to these murders. You know, this crime is news all over the place. Everyone's talking about it. But at this point, you don't realize that you're going to be arrested for it. Right. After his parents left the house, it's as if they were waiting, you know, on them to leave and that we were unaccompanied. And so, like, they left. Damien's mom, Pam, told us, like, hey, they come to the door to say, you know what? My parents aren't here. Come back when they're here. So you knew for, for a month, so your, your mum's going through this crisis in her head, like a lot of people in the town were, that, you know, my kids are at risk here because there's a murderer on the loose. Meanwhile, you've been told by the police that you're a suspect. I'd been, since I was 11 years old, at that same spot in my little driveway, talking to police. They were always just pulling up, calling me to the car, 
saying, Jason, this happened. What do you know about it? Because I have a record since I was 11 years old. And when you have a record, you can't tell them, no, I don't want to talk to you. West Memphis recoiled in horror. It's but for the grace of God, it could have been our children. For weeks, an intensive manhunt. The killers were on the loose, the community gripped by fear. Then in June, arrests in the case and the unbelievable news from police. The alleged killers were practically kids themselves. When you first had a court appearance for the murder charge, you know, we've seen the, the, the sort of TV footage of, of people yelling abuse at you. You were 16 years old. Describe that scene and what was going through your head. I felt like like something, it was like something you read about in the Bible. Like you read about, you know, Jesus casting the demon's legion into the swine and sending them in to the, to the water. You know, I felt like everybody had become possessed by an evil spirit. Like they just turn because you know one day people were my friends and neighbors the next day they wanted to kill me and they were literally possessed of hatred and and, and would say the most vile and horrible things mm. you had a clear alibi on the day of the murders you must have thought that they would be able to just validate that find out from other people that this is a legitimate alibi and that this would go away they told me these are just your family and friends. We can't trust them in a the courtroom. The most compelling evidence yet was introduced in open court. Miss Kelly's tape confession made the police. I saw Damien hit this one, hit this one boy real bad. Now he started screwing him and stuff. Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch and started doing the same thing. Michael o. Moore took off running, so I chased him and grabbed him and held him till they got there and then I left. Now you knew uh, Jesse, I think, from school, but you didn't know him well. At some point, you heard that he had confessed to this and then implicated you and Damien. It was, uh, I'd been in jail for quite some time before uh, it was revealed to me who the friend was that the police kept alluding to on the night of my arrest. It didn't change anything for me. Why did you think he had done that? I figured, you know, they just made him. Like, they kept trying to make me guess. Like, they kept trying to say well, who do you think this friend is? Give us a name. And I'm like, I'm not going to play guessing games because any name I guess, that's somebody you're going to bring in here and you're going to put through the same type of question. You're going to ask them, well, why would somebody say your name? And we later find out, of course, that Jesse had an IQ of 72. Uh, he was a minor. He was questioned alone. His parents weren't present during the interrogation. He was almost this perfect target for a, a forced confession, a coerced confession, and it wasn't videotaped. No, and, and, and they interrogated him for over 12 hours. Mm. They picked him up that morning while I was still at school, you know, having my last day at school, you know. You and Damien lived in trailer parks. You, you were poor. How much of the sort of social background kind of enabled this prejudice against you? Were you guys an easy target? You didn't have the funds for a good lawyer? Well, before Damien ever moved to the trailer park, you know, I got arrested when I was 11 and so did everybody in the trailer park. Mm. So after that, at school, all of us kids would be taken out of class one at a time, whichever classroom we were in, taken to the principal's office and questioned by our probation officer. And so other people outside looking in, being witness to this behavior for years without asking us directly said, oh, all those kids out there are on parole, probation. They're all troublemakers. Mm. You know, 
keep your kids away from them. Don't talk to them. Keep them at a distance or trouble. Mm. And so when Damien moved to the trailer park, he didn't have a criminal record, but he suffered the prejudice of it. It appears satanic worship may have played a role in the murders. Since the very beginning of the investigation, people all around West Memphis have come forward with stories of satanic cults. This is happening at a time when the satanic panic was happening in America. You know, people describe Damien and you and Jesse as part of this cult, which feeds into this. Damien was into witchcraft. I wondered if if you were too and what that kind of meant. This is just young teenage kids kind of being interested in the occult and all the rest of it. But this came months after one of the most famous cult sort of incidents in America, the uh, siege at Waco, which ended in a fire and David Koresh and 80 plus people died in this fire. Um, so people were very aware around the world of America and and its sort of propensity for having these religious cults, basically. So your story sort of immediately was was massaged to fit this narrative, right, of the, the cult-loving, witchcraft-practicing kids who have performed this satanic ritual on these kids. Can you, can you just give us some idea of what was going on? It, it was an entirely prejudicial time. Um, prosecutors utilize this tactic, not just in our case, but in many other cases. Um, I'm thinking of the San Antonio Four out of Texas as one, uh, uh, just one off the top of my head, and there are several other cases in Texas, and, uh, and they did this strictly to prejudice the jury. In absence of evidence, in absence of guilt, they pick jurors, not of your peers, but of a stripe that holds some type of prejudice towards something personal about you. Say, for instance, Damien, he was interested in a Wicca. So what? He is an American. We should protect that right. I wasn't particularly interested in a Wicca or any religion. I could have cared less. I was a kid. I just wanted to go to school and have fun and live a good life. I know I, I keep mentioning your age, but I, I want people listening to kind of remember that you were at 16 years of age. I just turned 16 on Easter Sunday. Take us back to the first day of the trial. People were heckling outside. I wondered, you know, knowing what we know now about the support that you eventually got, I want to talk about that later, but did you have any any supporters at this point from the community? At that point, I, I didn't, um, and I was really kept separate and away from everything and everyone because the state was trying to put so much pressure on me in particular as the youngest. Hmm. To break, so they were putting all the pressures on me, and, and even that very night of my arrest, you know, they stripped me buck naked, took all my clothes, put me in an open hallway in the jail, and then let all the prisoners walk past me, and look at me, and curse me, and condemn me, and say what was going to happen to me, what was deserving of a child killer, and it was the worst things you could imagine. We all know that anyone branded child killer in prison is fair game, basically, and they're going to be, they're going to probably be beaten up, if not certainly have their life threatened. Um, you talked about other cruelty. What sort of cruelty did you experience in jail? Well, it's just that night, the cruelties of them not taking my word, um, the cruelties of them taking my clothes from me and putting me in that situation where they knew they they wanted those prisoners to convey to me what was going to happen in my future. And then they follow that up with saying, hey, you must cooperate so these things do not happen. But I was cooperating. I was giving them the truth. 
but they refused it. And so from after, after you know, that night, um, the very next day I was arraigned, uh, I pled not guilty. And then when they were taking me from the West Memphis jail up North, we drove past the trailer park that I lived in Lakeshore trailer park. And the police officer said, look, look at it. That's the last time you'll ever see your home. And so even though those were just words, those were cruelties. Mm. Those were cruelties. And every single person I would meet from then on, at the very best, they would say words of cruelties to me. Mm. That would be their best behavior. Jason, in the video of the trial, you look so young and hopeless. It, it's very, very tragic to to watch. And I wondered, you must have watched those videos back since then in the intervening years when you've been free, um, since you've been released. What do you see when you look at yourself? I, I see, you know, exactly how I was, you know, as this kid, you know, without a hope or a chance in the world. And, and everybody who was supposed to protect me were failing at their job. There's a very telling incident, I think, uh, sort of serves as a bit of a microcosm for the whole the whole trial and what happened to you. But there was a incident where divers searched the lake behind your trailer and they searched a very small, specific area of the lake right behind your trailer. Uh, the press were called and the divers found a knife. And John Fogelman, who, you, who was the deputy prosecuting attorney, was told it had been thrown in the lake by your mother a year before the crime. It had absolutely nothing to do with the murder, and he knew that. It couldn't have done because it was thrown in a, a year before. Do you remember when that came up at the trial? And, and I want to know, as a 16-year-old kid, we've described what you looked like at the time and, and this innocent, you know, very, very young, um, small kid. Did you have a sort of deference to authority back then that made just stopped you from yelling out, but this is bullshit? Well, you have to understand the programming that anybody goes through, they make sure you know that you have no control over your body, even even the clothes that you wear. If they want you naked, they will take your clothes from you. If they want you in a concrete box and where no one can see you, that's where you will be. And so when the judge tells you, no matter what you hear, no matter what you see, you will not have an emotional outburst or you will be removed. I believe that man. Mm. I believe that threat. You were controlled. I was controlled. I want to draw your attention back to August of last year, where you were in the Craighead County Juvenile Detention Facility. Yes, I was. When you were there, was there a Jason Baldwin in the juvenile detention facility at the same time? Yes. Before the trial, Michael Carson lied about you, saying that you'd bragged in jail about the murders. What caused you to come forward at that point in time? Why, why did Michael Carson no longer want to stay uninvolved? Why did you come forward in February this year? Because I saw the family on TV and saw how brokenhearted they were about their children being missing, and I got a soft heart. I couldn't take it. Did you? Obviously, you knew he was lying. But did you immediately think that he had something to gain from this, that he'd been promised sort of leniency? Did you know why this was going on? I did not even know he was going to testify until he was walking mm. into the courtroom. Paul Ford pulled me to the side and he said, remember what the judge said. You can't show any emotion. Mm. This kid is about to come in and take the stage and tell everyone that you admitted to him that you committed these crimes. You know that's not true, but you cannot say anything. Mm. 
you must sit there and remain stoic. And so that's what I did. I sat there and remained stoic. I couldn't even imagine why this kid was up there lying, except maybe to think he was threatened and put into some type of impossible situation. And he wasn't, you know, morally strong enough to say, no, I'm not going to lie on somebody. But I imagine they were like, hey, you've been in all this trouble. Hmm. We want to help you. Do you blame him? I I blame the system. Hmm. Because the system is what should know better. The system shouldn't victimize people and put people in such hopeless situations that they'll gnaw their own arms off to get out of it. Mm. Jason, the, 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 the moment the guilty verdict was read out, um, is that a blur in your mind or do you remember that very, very vividly? I remember everything very vividly and distinctly, as, at least as vividly as my blurry vision and, <laughs> and my impaired hearing would permit. Right. Um, that, that was the only opportunity I'd given a, I'd been given to speak in the courtroom from that point forward. I was told to sit still and silent and wait on my chance to talk. Do you remember what you said? Told him, but I'm innocent. Hmm. Judge Burnett said, is there any reason this court should not, you know, carry out this sentence and punishment? I said, but I'm innocent. And he said, well, the jury's found different. Hmm. And so it condemned me to a lifetime of hard labor. You were sent to a maximum security prison. You were 17. You've been branded a child killer, which in prison is, is the worst. And I want to know what, what that did in terms of the other inmates' um, behavior. Were you beaten by other inmates? I was. Um, and so when I finally got to Varner unit, there's this long walkway leading up to the building. The guards say, hey, you see that door up there? Just go up to there and there'll be somebody to meet you. And I'm like, y'all aren't walking with me. And they're like, no. And they acted like my question was stupid. Like, no, you just go up there on your own. And so at that point, I had not walked in over a year by myself. And so even though I was walking across an, uh, an open field in fenced in area to a prison, that walk, I hadn't felt that much liberty in a long time, you know, and, and, and I just breathed. I just, I just stayed in that moment to where there was nobody holding me, nobody that's got me physically, even though I know the guard is up there in the tower, they're watching me and any wrong move, they're going to shoot me. I know this and I know they're everywhere, but in that moment, there's just no one right there threatening me. There's no one, you know, I'm just, I'm in an open space. The sun is shining. So that walk, I, I, I just enjoyed being in that walk so they they took me and i went and so sergeant armstrong this little short dude is there and and he gives me a a set of clothes a blanket and and, and like here's your stuff you know in a paper bag with a bar soap and and a little toothbrush and a little toothpaste you know a little paper bag and then mr Patton is like all right come with me to my office and they were literally climbing up the walls pointing at me knowing who I was, beating on them, and saying they're going to get me. Hmm. What happened when you went into that barracks for the first time? Did they go through with what they said they were going to do and beat you up? Oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as, as soon as I walked in, that's all I did was fight. That little paper bag that was holding that bar of soap and toothbrush and toothpaste, it was ripped out of my hands. Jason, you're not a big guy. Uh, I, I weighed 112 when I got arrested. Here you were with, I'm guessing, three options. You either fight, 
you become essentially a, a slave to these other inmates, a sex slave potentially, or you pay them for uh, protection. Sergeant Ivy was working the door that day, and uh, before he let, before he opened the door to let me in, he said, "Hey, um, you stand up for yourself. I got your back. If you don't, they do." Mm. And meaning implying that they would have me sexually. What it was, that place was run by gangs. And what they do is they beat people in a submission to where you are scared to fight anymore and you become a sex slave. But I fought the entire time. Wow. How did you deal with that mentally? I mean, obviously, physically, you're fighting. But how do you get through that? That's one of those things. You know, I just prayed for them. You know, it's like it's like a, when I got arrested, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not really a religious person, but I, I believe and have faith and, and I believe in good things and stuff like that. Right. As years went by, you know, I mean, and even then, that that very first hour of me fighting with them, I earned their respect by fighting because, I, mm. you know, they, they could respect that. They're like, oh, well, you know, Sergeant Ivy come in, you know, and he pulls them off and he's like, you know, a, a, a term they use in there is called catching out. Because most people, when they go to that barracks, they catch out after a few fights or even, you know, a minutes immediately. And uh, so now he's asking me, hey, you okay? You need to catch out? And uh, somebody yelled, you know, oh, he ain't no punk D, you know, he's he going to fight. He ain't catching out. I'm like, no, I'm good. This, this is where I'm at. You know, I'm not, mm. I, I deserve to be at home. I belong at home, but I'm not going to sign up for any protective custody and I'm not going to sign up for any suicide prevention unit. A brief word from one of our sponsors. If, like me, the election was such a nail-biter, it affected your sleep, and America's politics continues to do so, Helix Sleep may have just the solution. I got my mattress about a month ago. You may remember from our previous podcast series that my dog Scruff beat me to the punch when it came to trying it out, but since then I've kicked him off and have been having a fantastic night's sleep every night. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. I took the quiz. I was matched with a medium mattress suitable for side sleepers. So it's soft, but still really supportive. And I'm falling asleep right away. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't even need to go into the mattress store ever again. So for my listeners, you can go to helixsleep.com slash masses, as in huddled masses, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They've got a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free, and they'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. But you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash masses did you have family visits was your mom visiting you or any any family or friends she she came as much as she could mm. life was incredibly miserably hard on her and my brothers um life was never easy on them in the first place and this just made it incredibly so but they came as often as they could um my little brother matt used to make mixtapes for me mm. and smuggle them in and i would listen to them till they got confiscated Today, the West Memphis Three have become a cause celeb. How can you be absolutely sure that these three men are innocent? If there was the tiniest sliver of doubt, I wouldn't be sitting here. 
Actor Johnny Depp learned about the case from an HBO documentary. You guys, you got given a moniker, the West Memphis Three, and this became a, a thing. The, the move to get you freed built and built and built. It was a movement, a grassroots movement, which eventually became bigger than uh, you could probably have ever imagined. So it included celebrities like Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, Henry Rollins. Despite the support, I'm feeling positive about the three men have been denied new trials by Arkansas courts. Do you feel a sense of the clock ticking? Oh, yeah. You know that sometimes when someone from Hollywood takes a stand on an issue, he can be dismissed or sometimes accused of doing it for publicity. Yeah, I'm a big publicity hound, me. <laughs> this was a big celebrity-driven move to get you out. And, and I wonder, you know, why do you think that this became so big? Why do you think they became personally so involved? Why do you think this became such a big case? Like a lot of them say, and, and when you talk to them, and, and it just became so evident to them, like this could literally have happened to them. Mm. This could happen to any of their fans. And so someone has to stand up and say, no, this isn't what justice is about. This isn't what our system should be about. Let's uh, help these guys. Mm. Because in essence, we were defenseless. And like so many people in America are. And when once you have the finger of suspicion pointed at you, it makes it even monumentally more difficult to defend yourself. So it was very uh, personal for, you know, like Lars and James and Kirk. Lars from uh, Metallica. Yeah. Were you fans of any of these bands before? oh man i love metallica music it's my favorite i mean that's my favorite band forever in recent years though dna evidence has been recovered at the scene none of it linking the accused to the crime finally testing was carried out on uh, the crime scene nothing from the three of you was found but they did find an extra hair which still you know to this day they've never found the real perpetrator of the this horrendous crime. But the Supreme Court ruled that you could have a new trial. What was take me back to that day that you do you remember where where you were what you were doing in prison when you heard that you had been given the right to have a new trial? I remember when Act 1780 of 2001 was passed and it was uh it it, it said this purpose of the judicial system was to uh, exonerate the innocent and condemn the guilty. And Mr. Phillips born and Mr. Hendricks were my attorneys at this time. And we're like, this is going to be good. We can get evidence tested. You know, we filed and that was in 2001 and, and it would be 2005 before judge Burnett would sign the order to allow DNA testing. But between that time, we're looking at the evidence. We're talking about the evidence. We're putting together inventories of the evidence. Mm. We're proposing uh, uh, different laboratories and different tests to test it. But we're looking at this evidence, not knowing who it could be connected to, but we're looking at it and we're saying this hair in the knots, that is most likely the killer's mm. hair. We need to get that tested. This hair at the crime scene on the tree, we need to get that tested. Mm. We did and, and got it tested. Tell people listening what an Alford plea is. Alford plea. Um, it's a it's a case that originated out of North Carolina. Um, an innocent person 
was begging the courts for relief, praying for relief. And, and, and the best thing the state could do was say, you know what, we're always going to uh, say that you're the guilty person, but we're tired of fighting it. If you'll just say it's in the state's best interest to accept the charge to get out now, we'll, say, we'll allow you to say that you are innocent. A new trial likely, an odd deal was struck. The men could tell the judge they were innocent, but prosecutors would only let them go free if they agreed to enter a guilty plea. So basically you were given the opportunity to take this Alford plea, which was essentially... Forced. Well, they were really given an opportunity. I was forced. You were forced to do because it. Because they were saying, we're going to murder an innocent person if you don't take this deal to save the life of an innocent person. Under the unusual agreement known as an Alford plea, the three men who still say they are innocent had to plead guilty to murder. And the only thing that the state would do for us was to say, hey, we'll let you go only if you admit guilt. And that's not justice no matter how you look at it. Damien and Jesse had already indicated they were going to take this. So my understanding in this really dramatic moment was that essentially you had the deciding vote. I hate to put it in that way, but if you declined to take it for legitimate reasons because you were innocent, all three of you would stay in prison. I did decline And it. you did decline it. I said... I cannot accept this. Let's go back and talk to Damien and Jesse and, and get them to reconsider. Mm. Let's go back to the state and give them an alternate deal. It was a deal the youngest of the West Memphis Three first resisted, wanting to fight for total exoneration, until reminded that Damien Eccles had been in solitary confinement on death row for 10 years and was three weeks from execution back in 1994. What made you change your mind? All of a sudden, they pop the door and say, ball, and go to the chaplain's office. And when they said that, my heart literally fell out of my chest because there's only one reason anyone gets called to the chaplain's office. And that's if someone has died. I get there and they hand me the phone. I'm bracing myself for the terrible news. And it's not terrible news. It's Damien's wife, Lori. And they're like, please take the Alfred plea. And I'm in such an emotional state. I'm so elated that no one is dead. I, I get on the phone. I go back when I get to the barracks, I call Blake. I'm like, I'm going to take it. Wow. Now we turn to the three men who are free tonight for the first time in 18 years, released after serving half their lives in an Arkansas prison. After years of fighting for freedom, they were released today in a very unusual plea deal. Today, the West Memphis Three walked free. It's, it's been an absolute living hell. From the moment you decided I'm going to take the Alfred plea to being freed, how long was that? By that next Friday, I'm in Memphis that night on top of the Madison with Eddie Vedder, with Natalie Maines, with Damien, with Lori, with Mara Leverett, with Kathy Bakken, with Burke Saul, with Grove Pashley, with Lisa Fancher. I mean, all of our support team, Nicole Vandenberg. I mean, everybody who had fought for us to be free was on that rooftop. My mom, my mom. <laughs> Knowing that you were free finally, all these people that had been pushing for your freedom were joyful that you'd been freed, but bittersweet because you still, you know, had to take this Alford plea. And, the, and not only that, but the killer is still out there. And and I'm kind of uh, adamant that this isn't the place that we're going to sort of speculate. I know some documentaries have and, and listeners can find them and, and see what they did with this question of, uh, of course, it's a question on everyone's mind, like who, who actually did it. The danger is pointing the finger of mm. suspicion at mm -hmm. someone. Because it's exactly what happened to you. 
it robs them uh, of the preponderance of innocence, you know? And so Mm. people automatically, Oh, think you're guilty. Once someone has said you're guilty. And so someone really committed this crime. Um, and they're definitely still out there. I, it is my hope to get the case reopened and and pursue the evidence, no matter where the evidence leads and do it in such a way that, that is respectful of the truth. I I don't, I don't want to see them threatening anyone and to get a false confession. Mm. Are you still in touch with Damien and Jesse? For my own health and safety, I had to close that door on Damien, but I'm always uh, heartbroken over Mm. Jesse and always sending support his way. Um, he gets the least support, always has, and has very little to no opportunity, and he needs a lot of help. What about the victims' families? Have you had any connection with them over the years? I've gotten to be really close with Pam Hicks. In fact, she she didn't legally adopt me, but she 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 adopted me. She's like, I adopt you as my son, you know, and and, and I love her, and she loves me. Um, I've met Mr. Byers. Um, I haven't had a, an emotional moment with him like that. But like I said, I just met him. Is there any legal recourse now for you for, to, to get your freedom proper or is, is that it? Oh, definitely. Like I was telling you, my attorneys and I, Mr. Phillips Bourne and Mr. Hendricks and our private investigators are diligently working on the case. The truth of the matter, there is no statute of limitations for the crime of murder. Whoever did this will be brought to justice. And I will not give up. And that will that will mean your freedom properly. Yes. Well, look, we appreciate you chatting, Jason. You know, I can't even imagine what it's like to just keep keep sort of talking about the kind of worst time in your life. But I appreciate it, and I hope that people listening got something out of it, and and obviously the ultimately kind of realized that this stuff can and does happen more often than we could ever imagine. So. Um, you're looking well, and I can't wait to have another beer with you soon. Yes, I look forward to that as well, Alex. Um, stay well. Take care. Thanks so much. Wow, what an incredible story, Alex. There was so much in there that was was really powerful and really moving. I think in particular, the stuff that I found most incredible, the details about his first few days in prison you know and as a 16 year old boy going through that it's just unimaginable yeah you know I mean I think one of the things I've noticed and this comes out massively in Jason's interview is that in the decades I've been covering criminal justice is that people who have been incarcerated for so long have this photographic memory for dates and names and it's amazing to hear Jason Jason's recollection is so sharp and what's more amazing is how sort of measured and calm he is when he's kind of assessing now, all these years on, what happened to him, like the injustice he suffered. There's little details, you know, that that to him maybe just seem sort of throwaway, like how his brother would smuggle in mixtapes for him to listen to. But they really, for me, they really built up a picture of how much was taken away from Jason. It sounds mundane maybe uh, to some people, I listened to mixtapes in the 80s and 90s, but it's sort of the mundane stuff that we just took for granted. He lost such a massive part of his young life. It's interesting you picked up on the mixtapes as well, because that's something that I've been thinking about, in particular because he was probably listening to similar music yeah. that we were yeah. as well. And, and you know, I think 
we're maybe a year older than Jason. And when he was being sent to a maximum security prison, we were going off to university that, you know, the very same time. Yeah. It's just crazy to think of what he went through at that age. Exactly. And in, all of this might sound like history to us, but it's actually not for him, is it? And in, in particularly in regards to the Orford plea. Yeah, I mean, he's never um, he's never been fully exonerated of this crime. And now I feel like, you know, what he told us is that the only way that's ever going to happen is if they find the real murderer. So for Jason, he sort of wakes up every day thinking about this stuff. Um, and not only because he wants to be free, properly exonerated, but also it's just, it's amazing to me that he sort of dedicated his life to uh, talking about this stuff and talking about what happened to him. You'd think he'd want to just put this in the past and uh, just say, look, oh my God, I'm done with it. Like I cannot deal with the worst time in my life ever again. I just want to move on. But he talks about this stuff every day in order to help other people who have been through stuff like he has, people in similar positions. We first mentioned him in a podcast when we were making Dead Man Talking and you started working with Proclaim Justice. And he's still working with them, is that right? Yeah, I mean, he's he's one of the co-founders of Proclaim Justice and still works you know, for it every day. And they're taking on new cases and they're even during lockdown, actually, because I've been, I'm in touch with them a lot. They're still sort of tirelessly fighting for um, these people that they firmly believe are innocent. And if people want to find out more about Proclaim Justice and about Jason as he sort of fights his conviction, what's the best thing for them to do? Yeah, have a look at their websites, proclaimjustice.org. All right, Alex, before we go, um, I just want to have a bit of a chat about our theme song. (laughs) You sent me a WhatsApp message earlier in the week. You were very concerned about the music. I'm going to read it out. It says, we've got to get this right. I feel really strongly about music in our podcasts. I think they really set the tone. I'll keep looking. (laughs) And this was after I'd knocked back a few tracks that you'd sent me. You did. I remember you knocking them back. (laughs) (laughs) So, but you're really happy with the song that we have found. You keep telling me how happy you are. Uh, You sing it most times I speak to you. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to do that now. can Can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, so I Shall Be Released uh, was actually written by Bob Dylan and famously recorded by the band. I mean, I've always loved that song, but a, a few years back, I actually uh, was doing a story. Um, Billy Bragg, who, who some, most people will be familiar with, British singer-songwriter, um, from a fellow Essex man like myself, um, started a, an organisation called Jail Guitar Doors, where they were br- basically bringing instruments um, into prisons uh, in the UK and US to help sort of uh, prisoners sort of feel connected with the outside world. And I mean, it's such a great, great organization. And he got Wayne Kramer of the MC5 to sort of spearhead the charity in the US. And when they launched over here, it was during South by Southwest, which is the big music festival in Austin, Texas, where I used to live. And I was invited by Billy uh, to kind of tag along with them to the Travis County Jail in uh, Austin. Me and Billy, Wayne Kramer and uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, all these um, inmates were led in wearing their prison jumpsuits and stuff, uh, men and women, and they all kind of sat down in, in seats and I was kind of in the audience with them. And Billy and Tom and Wayne uh, were up on this sort of makeshift stage and they started singing I shall be released. And all the, the, the jail inmates were told 
uh, to kind of sing along with them. And it was a haunting um, experience, actually. Uh, it was it was really kind of nothing, uh, you know, I wasn't really ready for it. It was very, very emotional. Um, and anyway, I came across, I was looking at, at, at who had covered that song. There's a lot of people have covered it. And then I came across this cover by a woman called Polly Niles, which is from uh, quite a long time ago. I think she recorded it in the 70s. And managed to get in touch with the record label to license it cherry red in the uk and um we have it as our theme tune and it's lovely it certainly is okay well we can listen to it now um and can you give me some credits and i'll see you next week alex see you next week pete the innocence is presented by me alex hannaford the producer and sound engineer was peter sale additional production from luke quinton Our theme music is I Shall Be Released by Polly Niles, courtesy of Cherry Red Records. Thanks again to Jason Baldwin for his time and to Proclaim Justice. The Innocence is a DMT media production for Audio Boom. They say everything can be replaced. They say every distance is not near. So I remember every face of every man who put me here.